It is a favorite and familiar parable. I wonder how you would title it. Would you call it the prodigal son? Would you call it the parable of the two sons? Jesus simply introduced it as a story about a man with two sons. And since that man is the star of the parable, and who I think Jesus wants us to focus on in the parable, because in seeing this man we see something about God, I have entitled this, The Compassionate Father. And I'm going to go ahead and make that leap here, even though I do realize that that kind of talk about God makes some of us quite uncomfortable. Some of us here struggle with calling God Father, and for good reasons. It may represent to some here the patriarchal cultures that have elevated the value of men over the years to the detriment of women. In cultures in which the Bible is rooted, women were often treated not like persons, but like property. And even now, in the 21st century, here in America, with all of the advancements we've made toward fully valuing both women and men, there is still a sliding scale. So what some of you need to know here, if this makes you a bit uneasy, is that some people here, when they hear God referred to in masculine terms, well, it's a little bit like hearing nails on a chalkboard. And even more, some of us don't like to hear God referred to as Father because of the fathers that we've had. Some people in this room have been abused by their fathers. Some people in this room have watched their fathers abuse their mothers and their siblings. All of us have a concept of God that is shaped by our parents. And so all of us need to recognize that we come to God with a good bit of good and bad baggage because of it. And that's all true. All of that's true. But here's what's also true. The people listening to Jesus that day when he told this story were also real people who'd had real kinds of experiences like this with their parents. They had real baggage as well, maybe even to a level more extreme than you or I. Remember, we are at some level all comparing the father in this parable to our 21st century American fathers. But the people listening to Jesus that day would have been comparing the father in the parable to their first century Middle Eastern fathers, and the comparison would have been stark. Because this is not how first century Middle Eastern men would have behaved, especially in a situation like this, after all they had gone through. First of all, this beautiful scene at the end where the father sees the son in the distance and leaps off the porch and runs to the end of the drive and starts kissing him and hugging him and weeping all over him. That is not the behavior of a first century Middle Eastern man. Not in this situation. A child? Yes. A mother? Most certainly. But a father? Absolutely not. 
It would have been humiliating for a man in this position to behave with this kind of lovesick abandon in this moment. And this is why I think Rembrandt, and you can see the painting on the front of your worship guide, painted the father with two different kinds of hands. Did you notice? One is quite masculine, and the other is more feminine. And Jesus paints the father in this way too, which would have been quite shocking, even a bit scandalous. And I, I think... I have to think that somewhere in there, Jesus is trying to say this. I know that some of you have had bad experiences with your father. I know that some of you, many of you, perhaps most of you, don't have a father like this. And I'm really sorry about that. But I also want you to know that I do. And because of all you've been through, it may be hard for you to see it or believe it, but you really do too. You are all, you see, every single one of you, daughters and sons of a God who is like this. Secondly, we should remember here that this isn't just about the relationship between this son and this father. No, what's happening here in this parable is about the relationship between this son and this father and their whole family and everyone who works for them and every person here who is connected to this land and the livelihood that it brings into their community. This is not an individualistic society like ours. This is a collectivist society. Everyone is connected to everyone else and everyone's status in the family and in the community is interweaved with everyone else and it is all defined by the lack or presence of honor and shame. We've talked about this recently. So what the prodigal son is doing here is incredibly selfish, first of all. And secondly, it is incredibly disrespectful to not only his father, but to his family and to the entire community. Because, see, this is how this works. Normally, this property would have been divided between him and his older brother only after the father had died. And even in that situation, the brothers would ideally stay together and keep the land and all the property together because there were lots of people here who depended on the income and the livelihood and the food the life that was generated by this land and this property. Dividing the inheritance then wasn't just a matter of cutting this boy a check. Can you see that? It, dividing the her, inheritance in the way that it was done in this parable, it, it, what the father would have had to do is he would have had to liquidate the assets and take everything that would have eventually belonged to the son and turn that property, turn that land into some cash that could move with him away from everybody else who needed it. So just to be clear, when he left, he wasn't just taking something from his father. He was taking from the whole community. And this is important for us to understand because if we don't see this, we tend to read and hear this story only as a tale of someone who just wasn't interested in doing the family business and needed to go out on a journey to find himself. 
And we kind of resonate with that as Americans. The great American, or the great Christian philosopher Paul Tillich liked to talk about the fall of humanity in Genesis in this way. He called it a fall upward, meaning a move towards something positive, a fall upward, believing that humanity would have never reached its full potential, whatever that is, if we had only stayed in the garden. So perhaps that's what's happening here. Maybe the prodigal son was leaving and it was kind of a fall upward, a necessary journey of exploration. But whatever it was, whatever it was, it was at the expense of everyone else who depended on what he took with him when he left. And even more to the point, to ask the father to take his inheritance in the way that he did here was paramount to going to his father and saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Dad, I wish you were dead now. Would you mind just going ahead and giving me my inheritance so that I can go ahead and live as if you were dead now? Can you see what's happening here? Can you feel what's happening here? This son is shaming his father deeply. He's shaming him to his face and he's shaming him in front of his family. He's shaming him in front of the whole community. This decision will destroy the father's reputation and it will damage the lives of everyone who's connected to him in this community. And the common wisdom of the culture of that day, you've read the Old Testament, right? The common wisdom of the culture of that day said that this father should have responded by either throwing him out or beating him to a pulp, literally. Disowning him or beating him up would have both been perfectly acceptable responses here to this request, but instead the father responds by, Jesus says, dividing his property among them. Now the word property here in this passage is the Greek word bios. It's where we get our word biology, which means life. The father responded by dividing his life among them. And this is hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to grasp the full impact of this, but I think we are starting to get the point that for these people, so much of their life was in the land. The land was sacred. It was holy. They lived in it and on it and off of it. Their livelihood was in the land. Their reputation was in the land. Their future was in the land. Their life was in the land. And so... When this younger son came to the father and asked him for the inheritance in the way that he did, we can understand a number of responses from the father, but the way the father responds is not by beating him, not by disowning him, not by even reprimanding him, but instead the father does something which seems incredibly unwise. He listens to him. He listens to him. He considers his request. And then he looks 
at his son and says quite earnestly, Son, if that is what you want, I will tear my life apart for you. Son, if that is what you want, I will take my relationships and my reputation and my family and my heart, all of it, God, all of it, son, I will tear my life apart for you. Warren Buffett, the billionaire investor, has been very intentional about giving his children only enough money that they could do something with it. Perhaps, he said, enough money that they might believe they could do anything with it, but not so much money that they could do nothing with it, or that they would do nothing with their life. This father doesn't seem to follow those rules. The son asks, and the father gives. The son asks, the father gives, the son takes, and the son goes. The son takes and goes to live the way he wanted to live in a far country. Now the word prodigal literally means extravagantly reckless or fully wasteful, and we can certainly see how this son earns that title. Not just with how he spends his own life, but with how he chooses to spend and steward the lives of others he's supposed to be responsible for. He seemed to think that his life was his own. Just as many of us seem to think and live as if our lives are our own. A part of the point of studying these parables is so that we can see ourselves in them. And I think one of the reasons this parable is so popular is because that we often see ourselves, all kinds of people often find themselves in it if we look. This is why Rembrandt, you can look back at the painting, painted himself in there. Because he knew he was already there. Perhaps sometimes as a bystander in the crowd, perhaps sometimes as the waiting father himself, perhaps other times as the elder brother. I've never heard this parable preached from the perspective of the fatted calf, but there may be some seasons in life where we even feel like that. We're being sacrificed for the good of others. In our individualistic, me-first society, though, we ought to easily find ourselves in our own reflection in the prodigal son, who seemed to be searching everywhere at any cost to himself or anyone to find his true self. And you know, it's a noble pursuit. Sometimes it's even a necessary pursuit to find ourselves. We just all have to be aware that our choices have consequences. Our choices have consequences not just to ourselves, but to others as well. And so I wonder what might be missing in your life, in your family, what might be missing in your community, what might be missing in your church, because of the way you've chosen to live your life. Are you the only one affected by your choices? How have others been affected 
by your choices? This is one of the questions this parable begs us to ask ourselves, though it really is a smaller one. The larger one is this. Once I've made a mess of things, can I go home again? Once I've made a mess of things, can I go home again? The prodigal wasn't quite sure. Because see, at this point, he, he hadn't only lost the inheritance his father had torn apart his life to give him, he'd also lost himself. He was unrecognizable. The property was gone, the money was gone, and his dignity was completely gone as well. Notice, he wasn't just working as a hired hand, he was working in a far country as a pig farmer. Remember anything about the relationship between Jewish people and pork? Jewish people were prohibited from raising pigs because to even touch them would render them unclean, literally an abomination. That's what unclean means. This prodigal wasn't only touching them. He was longing to eat with them. He was longing to sit at the table with them and consume the source of their life. He couldn't have gotten farther from himself if he'd tried. He'd lost himself. He had become something unthinkable, something unrecognizable. And from this, he has concocted a narrative about himself that is quite honestly perfectly reasonable. That he is an abomination. That he is unacceptable. He went off to find himself and instead he'd lost everything. He'd lost himself. And it couldn't have gotten worse. It could have gotten worse. But just before completely hitting bottom, something occurred to him. How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough bread to feed themselves? Maybe, just maybe, if he's willing to treat them with that kind of dignity, he might be willing to offer me some measure of dignity again too. And so he sets off once again for home, hoping to return not as a son but as a slave, believing that this was his only option. And really, it should have been. But instead, the story says that while he was out there rehearsing, while he was out there on his journey rehearsing his guilt, rehearsing his sin, rehearsing his shame, rehearsing every misstep and every mistake that he'd ever made, and yes, rehearsing that speech he had prepared for the father he had wounded so deeply, the story says the boy looked up to see something that no one listening would have ever anticipated, least of all him. There he was. Running, running toward him in the distance. But how? How had he already seen him? He was, he was still so far away. It was almost as if he'd been sitting there the whole time waiting on his porch with a telescope, looking off into the distance, believing and hoping that maybe, just maybe, one day his boy might actually come home again. And there he was. And he didn't know why. 
And he didn't know how and he didn't seem to care because before the son even got the words out of his mouth, the father was kissing him and hugging him and weeping all over him. This was no servant. This was no slave. This was no abomination. This was my boy. And did you notice? The boy was so taken aback, he didn't know how to respond. He, he didn't know what to say. So what he started doing was just rehearsing that speech that he'd been preparing. He started speaking it to his father. Father, I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against heaven. But before the father could, before he could say anything else, the father, it was apparent, didn't hear it. And he wasn't having any of it. Instead, he said, get the robe, get the ring. Kill the fatted calf. Invite everyone you know and everyone I tell you because my boy is home again. My boy has come home again. See, friends, what Jesus is trying to help us do here is see. To see who we are now and who we've always been because of who God is and who God has always been. He's saying here to us that you may think you belong in the far country. You may think you're just a prodigal. You may think you're a slave. You may think you're the scum of the earth. You may think you're not worthy of your true identity. You may know that. We may know that we deserve something much less than what God wants to give us, but guess what? God knows differently because God loves differently. And no matter who you've done, who you, what you've done, who you are, what you've left undone, or how far you've wandered, God's love and God's grace has made a way for you to be who you're supposed to be. Even if you may not want it or deserve it. I love what the pastor, the German pastor Helmut Tylicki has said about this parable. He said this, the ultimate secret of this story is this. That there is a homecoming for us all because there is a home. There is a homecoming for us all because there is a home. Beautiful. And thanks be to God.